website by tomorrow. We put the sermon manuscript online as well. So if you miss a week, please feel free to check that out or, or share the good news. And don't forget about the blog, www.gregtaylorfcc.wordpress.com. Now, some of you have said, I read the blog every day, but I'm just not sure I'm ready to actually share anything online. I want to let you know I haven't made fun of anybody yet. The only person I'm going to make fun of is Ernie, if he ever logs back in. I may give him a hard time. No, I'm just kidding. But check out the blog. It's a great way to study the Bible with one another. Well, let's look at Judges chapter 11 to Judge or to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Last week, we were in Judges chapter 11, and we saw the story of Jephthah. And this week, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to look at an event from the life of David. And a whole bunch happened from where we were last week to where we are this week. The period of the Judges comes to an end. Do you remember the Judges cycle? It repeats itself over and over and over again. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. God's people mess up over and over and over again. And they are oppressed every time. And they, they repent finally, and God always rises up, raises up a deliverer. Well, after the period of the Judges, uh, we've got that wonderful book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. And then we dive into the, the books of 1 Samuel and today 2 Samuel. And we see Samuel the priest is the leader of Israel. Things are going well. God's people are prospering. But they're not happy. God's people are not content. And they cry out to Samuel, talk to the Lord on our behalf. We want to have a king. Why did God's people want to have a king? Do you remember? What? They wanted to be like everybody else. They said, every other nation has a king. Can we have a king? And Samuel says, you have no idea what you're asking for. And they say, we want a king. And the Lord tells Samuel after a while, Samuel, you don't be discouraged. They're not rejecting you. Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting me, the Lord. And so he gives them their wish. He gives them a king. The first king is Saul. It does not go well. That's the best, really, that I can say. Almost from the beginning of his reign, Saul is in trouble. And the Spirit of the Lord leads him. And that brings us to the second king of Israel, David. And, and David is one of the great heroes in the Bible, the greatest leader in the history of Israel, many people would say. I think Moses is in that discussion as well. But David, just an incredible, incredible servant. Um, what do we know about David? And I, I want you just to shout this out loud. Don't do the next slide yet. What do we know about David? Somebody tell me something you know about David. Who was he? He's a shepherd. Okay, killed Goliath. Did he have a tag phrase? What was his tag phrase? He was a man after God's own heart. What else do we know about David? Did God bless him? God bless him incredibly. Put that next slide up here. Here's a few things that, that I wrote down about David. He was the second king of Israel, the slayer of the giant Goliath, very young in his life. Um, he went on to become maybe Israel's greatest king. He was a man after God's own heart. And I really love this right here. He is the second person in the Old Testament up to this time that God pours out an unconditional covenant to. The first was Abraham in Genesis 12. God told Abram at the time, I'm going to make you a nation, a land, and a blessing. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he pours out this unconditional covenant promise. Your kingdom will endure forever. There will be no end to your reign. Your name will be great. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter, 
telling of how special really David is. And hey, parents, grandparents, let me just give you an FYI. Maybe the most important verse about what God is looking for in somebody is um, during David's anointing, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Um, Samuel goes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king of Israel. He thinks it's the oldest. And, and verse 7 says that he thought it would be the oldest, um, Eliab, because Eliab was handsome and well-built. And then we have that verse where it says, The Lord does not look at what man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance. What's the Lord look at? The Lord looks at the heart. And that's a great verse to reinforce to our teenagers, to our college students, to our junior hires. Here's what God looks at. Okay, with that, we're at 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as we get there, I think it's safe to say, David, the man after God's own heart, is literally on top of the world. It's as good as it gets. If David's life were to end at the end of chapter 10, it would be the dream life. It would be as good as it gets. But if you know your history, if you know your Bible, you know the story doesn't end there. Unfortunately, um, today's scripture is discouraging in many ways. Today's passage can be disappointing in many ways. And I want to tell you this story in four parts. Four parts. And let's dive in with part one, 2 Samuel 11. I'm calling it David's Bowl of Stew. Now, if you're a visitor, if you're new, you may not understand what that means. When we started this series three weeks ago, we read the account of Jacob and Esau and how Esau gave up the incredibly bright future God had planned for him for a bowl of stew. And we look back at that and we say, that was crazy, but the bowl of stew is what did Esau in. Well, David has his own bowl of stew, and it's just as lethal in many ways. So let's read together the, the word of the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained. In Jerusalem. Do you see it? Did you catch it? David's fall is right there. Now, there's no adultery described. There's no murder described. What do you see there? Is there a word you see? It's the word complacency. See, it says in the springtime, when the kings go off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. See, almost from the beginning of the time that David served the Lord, his life was the life of a warrior. His life was the life of a man in battle. And time and time and time again, when David goes to battle, the Lord is with him, but the warrior's life is a tough life. When we have people that come back from serving in Iraq or serving in Afghanistan, if you were to get a cup of coffee with them, get a Diet Coke with them, and sit down and talk with them, they would describe to you a much different life than we experience. Would, would you agree? Our lives are, are made up of walking the dog and basketball games and crying over a line I lost. That, that's our life in many ways. 
Their lives are, um, you know, body armor, machine guns, helmets, tanks. And that's the life that David lived. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was a fierce warrior. And put that last scripture up one more time. It says, in the spring, when the kings went off to war, David stayed in Jerusalem. He stayed in Jerusalem. David's downfall begins with complacency. Let's read on. Verse 2. It says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Trouble alert whistle should be going off right now. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers with her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived, sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. The man, after God's own heart, finds himself in the arms of a woman that is not his wife. The woman of another man. And before long, his complacency has led him to lust and to commit adultery. Now, I have heard some scholars say that David's mistake was that he didn't pray for God to take the temptation away from him. Or that David should have been so strong in, in spirit and in soul that a beautiful woman bathing would do nothing to him. And I want to just say right now that to, to any of you, if, um, if you find a woman attractive, if you find a man handsome, that in itself is not a bad thing. That's from the Lord. There are people all across our country paying lots of money to buy little pills so they can get that feeling again. I mean, you know what I'm saying. You've seen the commercials. It's a good thing, but here's the catch. It's outside of the context that God had put into place. It's outside of the plan that God had for David's life. You think about David. David's living the dream. David has multiple wives. David is able to be with his wife's concubines. The Lord blesses that. And yet for David, enough isn't enough. And his complacency has led him to seek after that forbidden bowl of stew, that forbidden apple, that woman he was supposed to have nothing to do with. And at this point, if you are a fan of the Bible, if you are a fan of reading the Bible, you understand how tragic a fall David has experienced. This is the guy that got in his underwear and danced before the Lord with all his might. I mean, there is nothing in this world that would make me get in my underwear and dance in front of all of you. I just want you to know that. Nothing at all. No bet. Nothing. David loved the Lord so much, he didn't care. And yet here he is in the grip of lust, committing adultery, breaking one of God's ten commandments. Let's read on. Verse 6. 
So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the place, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Verse 9, listen, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. Now when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked, haven't you come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Catch the heart of Uriah right here in verse 11. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and the Lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house to eat, to drink, to lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I mean, that's the type of man I want in battle with me. He's a, he's a good guy. My son is 11. Everybody's either a bad guy or a good guy in his world. Illinois, the good guys. Indiana, the bad guys. Um, the Bears are the good guys. Well, I won't go down that road. But my, my point being, it's very cut and dried in his world. And I'm going to tell you, in any world, he's a good guy. Uriah's one of the good guys. David can't have enough Uriah's in his life. Let's read on verse 12. David said to him, to Uriah, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. See, David knows he's got a problem. David knows he's in trouble. He realizes that his complacency has led him to lust and to commit adultery and that his life's probably changed forever. But instead of stopping and repenting and saying, Lord, I messed up, forgive me, he decides the only thing he can do is try to cover up his sin. David's become the deceiver. See, he can't just say Bathsheba, go and, and, and tell Uriah you're pregnant and tell her it's your child. Why, why can't she say that? Did you read it? Because she had cleansed herself from her, purified herself from her uncleanness. It would be impossible for the child to be Uriah's. He's been out at battle. So David decides, here's what I'll do. I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to repent. I'll bring Uriah back. I'll get him drunk. He'll sleep with his wife and everyone will live happily ever after. There's just one problem with his cover-up. There's just one plan with his deception. Uriah is a very special guy. Uriah loves the Lord so much. He loves David so much. He loves the army so much. He's sleeping on a mat at the gate to his house. Can I tell you, if I'd been in battle and I'm coming home, I'm eating my food, I'm drinking my Diet Coke, and I'm sleeping with my wife. That's just being honest. I'm telling you right now. That's the bottom line. Uriah won't do it. And so David's got a problem. You can look at it. That's okay. All right. Verse 14. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and he will. 
fourth part of our story here. The man after God's own heart, when all else fails, turns to murder. The man after God's own heart becomes a murderer. And the rest of chapter 11 tells the story of David's plan being put into place. Did you catch, by the way, who carries this command to Joab? Who carried it? Uriah. He sent it with Uriah. His own death orders are sent to Joab. And so I read this, I've got to tell you, and I see David, and I can't believe what I'm reading. Anybody else have that reaction? I can't believe that the man that had an unconditional covenant promise poured out to him in 2 Samuel 7 is the same guy in 2 Samuel 11. And you know the worst part of all of this in many ways is I think David thinks he's going to get away with it. When he goes to bed at night, he's probably thinking, you know what? Cover-ups work. Well, one guy died. Just one. Let's read the rest of the story. Part 2, The Fall of a King. Chapter 12, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and with his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, I need to tell you at this point, I hope you caught this last week, we read that, and like I think of my dog Sadie, that's pretty much the life that she has. She's one of us in many ways. She is eating out of our hands. She is drinking out of our cup in many ways. Okay? This time, 1000 B.C., 990 B.C., that's not happening. Israelites didn't have house pets. They didn't have Sadie the Golden Retriever or whatever it may be. So this is an extreme illustration that Nathan is telling David. David probably didn't know anyone that had this situation. But I want you to notice David's response, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing. And what's that last thing say? He had no what? He had no pity. Does anyone else find it ironic that he's all fired up about this guy and his little lamb? He sure didn't have any pity when it came to Uriah the Hittite. That's what sin will do to you. And then Nathan the prophet, one of the most in-your-face verses of Scripture in the Bible, verse 7 simply, You are the man. You are that man. The man after God's own heart has been exposed as an adulterer, a deceiver, and a murderer. And, and Nathan goes on to pour out a pronouncement of judgment against David. Time won't allow me to read all of it, so I want to give you a quick summary. Uh, the Lord says, David, I gave you more than you have, could have possibly needed. And if that wasn't enough, guess what? I would have given you even more if you just would have asked. And yet you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil. And then he says the consequences for your sin are going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And you know the consequences of his sin did haunt him for the rest of his life. 
really three primary consequences. Here they are. Number one, he's told he's never going to find peace. The sword will never depart from your life. He's told that out of your own house, I'm going to bring calamity upon you like you've never seen before. And that's exactly what happened. His oldest son, Amnon, raped his sister. Another son of David's, Absalom, avenges his sister, Tamar, by killing Amnon. Before long, his son Absalom runs him out of Jerusalem, runs him out of the palace. David's on the run, and Absalom dies a horribly violent death because of it. And even when he's on his deathbed, as David's ready to pass the torch to his successor, his son Solomon, another son, Adonijah, rises up in rebellion against him, and he too dies because of this rebellion. For the rest of David's life, he's going to pay this price because of his bowl of stew, because of his sin. So what's our takeaway? What do we take from this? I want to do this quickly, but I want to give you four things. And again, you may be sitting there saying, Greg, this doesn't really connect with me. My life's good. My marriage is good. Or I'm not married and everything's good on that front. I want to just tell you, nobody is immune to a David-like disaster. Nobody. So listen, please next couple minutes. Number one, sin is dangerously enticing. Sin is dangerously enticing. And so we have to be cognizant of what the trouble spots in our lives are. I've shared with you before that um, through different periods of my adult life, I found myself trying to lose weight. I've been on a diet. You know, I'm trying to do this healthy or that healthy, whatever it may be. And My downfall is almost always sweets. I love sweets. I'm a snack machine. Um, The fellowship time, man, it's right up my alley. And yet, if you were to bring into me right now a big old piece of coconut pie, maybe you went home and you baked a coconut pie, and you brought it and you gave it to me, you know what? I I wouldn't go near it because I'm disgusted by coconuts. They look like little toenail clippings on on the pie. It's, It's awful. It's horrible, okay? So you bring me that coconut piece of pie, I'm not touching it. Because it's not enticing to me. But i got to tell you, if you brought me a piece of homemade apple pie with a little bit of vanilla ice cream on it, I would stop the sermon right now and I would eat that pie. You would pray, I would eat the pie, and we'd get out a couple minutes late. Because it's enticing. I love it. Sin is exactly the same way. Sin is dangerously enticing. And if we don't understand that, if we don't realize that, before long, we've got a David-like disaster. Let me say this. David didn't wake up that morning saying, you know what? Instead of worshiping tonight, instead of reading from the book of law tonight, I think I'll go commit adultery. That, That didn't happen in his mindset. But complacency led him to be in that situation. Number two, number two, the power of sin can lead God fearers to act like pagan people. Never say never. Never embarrass yourself by saying, Pastor, that will never happen to me. That could never happen to me. I would never go down that road. The power of sin is incredible. James 1 talks about that downward spiral of sin, about how first we're drawn away by our own evil desires, then we're enticed, then um, desire conceives, gives birth to sin, and before long, sin brings about death. Friends, sin is awful. Sin is terrible. Sin brings about separation from God. Understand the power of sin. Number three, 
everyone is susceptible to temptation. And that means you and me. We're all susceptible to temptation. That's why tomorrow, if you're doing the B90X, you're going to read the prayer of Jabez. Anybody heard of the prayer of Jabez? I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the theology around that, but the best part of the prayer of Jabez is the last part of the prayer where he says, keep my hands from evil. That's a prayer I need to pray every day, and you need to pray every day. Today, as I live my life, keep my thoughts pure. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God. And then finally, number four. The consequences of sin typically bring much more pain and suffering than we could ever imagine. I wish we could go back in time. Like I said, I wish we could go back in time with, with Esau and the bulls too. Wouldn't it be great to go back in time to David on the rooftop at night, and he's seeing the beautiful woman, and she's a knockout, and his mind's starting to wander, and you know he's lusting. Wouldn't it be great to sit him down and say, David, guess what? These next two hours are going to define your legacy. They're going to define where you go from here. And yes, you could probably get her to come over. And she would probably sleep with you. But you know what? If you go down that road, you're going to pay a price for the rest of your life. Wouldn't it be great when we find ourselves in that situation to have that visit? We start to realize the price we're going to pay. Here's the bottom line. I want you to see this this morning. Bottom line is sin is never as rewarding as it appears to be. It's never as rewarding as it appears to be. If we could ask David, was it worth it? I guarantee you he'd say no. If we could ask Esau, was it worth it? I guarantee you he would say no. And there's a whole bunch of you that if I held the microphone up, you might come up and say, you know what, five years ago, this was my bowl of sin. And it wasn't worth it. Or five months ago, th- this was my bowl of sin. And it wasn't worth it. Sin is never as rewarding as it appears to be. Well, I told you we had four parts to this sermon. And we've only done three parts, right? So that means what? There's another part. Very good. You're, you're going to do good in life, I can tell. Okay, part four. The rest of the story. Here's how I want to close today, real quickly. The man after God's own heart ends well. David was able to redeem his legacy because he experienced legitimate repentance. You know what David is known for? We think of him as a fierce warrior, but he's also known as a songwriter. Many of the the, the praise hymns that Jim and the team lead us in, David penned in the Psalms. And yet my favorite song that David wrote is the song that he wrote after he was confronted by Nathan after he was told that his life and the consequences of his sin would endure forever. Listen to what he wrote. It's Psalm 51. I'm going to put the words up on the screen. He writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, the Lord blessed 
David's life post Bathsheba in a great way. We may not realize it. He faced the consequences of his sin all the days of his life. But do you realize his son Solomon succeeded him as king? And his son Solomon had the greatest reign of anyone in terms of landmass or in terms of wealth or in terms of power and prestige. Do you realize that Solomon's mother, you know who it was? Bathsheba. And so the takeaway this morning, for me, really is pretty simple. If you've had a David-like disaster, you don't have to wallow in that disaster. Maybe it was five years ago. Maybe it was five months ago. Maybe it was five days ago. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus brings forgiveness. And that's a gift for you and for me. The team is going to come and we're going to sing the song Surrender. And if you're not a Christian, I want to just invite you to come forward and give your life to Jesus today. That's what we do during this invitation time. But for the rest of us, I know many of us here today, we made decisions to follow Jesus a long time ago. And what I would like you to do today as we sing this song Surrender, is I want you to think about an area of your life that may be pulling you down. Jim Lee.